Last week we talked about how Jesus has rescued us. Jesus has rescued us. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's good news. And we talked about how he rescued us, not because of anything that we mustered up. We didn't bootstrap our way into morality of going, we're, we're good people now. We didn't, we didn't figure out, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live and uh, I'm going to be a really good person and so God will rescue me. But no, he did it regardless of the sin and the disobedience in our life. And he rescues us, brings us into his kingdom, and he says we have redemption. So he canceled the debt against us and the forgiveness of sins, meaning he's not remembering it anymore. So we are now in right standing with God because God has rescued us through the work of Jesus. So we talked about, as we're going through Colossians, the first six weeks, we're going to be talking about who is Jesus, and then the last six weeks, we're going to be talking about, and then so how, what, what does that transform inside of us? So last week, we talked about how Jesus rescued us. This week, we're talking about how Jesus rules. Not Jesus rules and like, Jesus rules, this is awesome, which is true, but uh, think of like Jesus rules as his kingship and his authority and his power and his, the, the word that's used in scripture that we're going to see today is his supremacy. So look with me to verse 18. Verse 18 says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. It's talking about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Real quick, Paul was writing to the church in Colossae to confront, we talked about last week, several pervasive thoughts and or beliefs. Um, one of those things were, were the synchronization of religious practices. And what I mean by that is the church was saying, Jesus is a really, really good guy. Jesus is a really, really good addition to the other religious practices that we have. So we're going to worship these spirits. We're going to, we're going to worship these like dark arts. We're going to do all this stuff. And we want to add Jesus on top of that. And so Jesus is, is great. He's a great addition, but he's nothing more than a great addition. And Paul is writing to confront this very thing. And Paul's saying that, no, 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 you, you're misunderstanding. It's not that Jesus is a great addition. Jesus is the whole enchilada. He's all of it. It's not even a discussion. As it, Paul's, Paul's claiming here that as an objective fact, which our world doesn't like to, to deal in, but as an objective fact, Jesus is supreme. Jesus rules. He has the authority and the power and all of this. He rules and he reigns over all things and over all people. Now, this is not... This isn't a discussion on whether or not we choose to submit to that authority and to submit to that rulership. If you think about, if you go to your job tomorrow and you go to whoever your, your direct report, direct supervisor is, direct reports under you, I think. But if you go to whoever you report to and you say, hey, listen, I'm not going to acknowledge your uh, authority and your power in my life anymore. Does that change that person's power or authority in your life? No. 
fact, you probably won't have a job anymore. So our willingness to submit to the kingship and the rulership of Jesus does not change. Like it, it, it doesn't affect on whether or not he is, does have rulership and does have uh, kingship. And, and I think where we get a pause in all of this is this idea of authority in our culture gives us a lot of caution because our culture loves autonomy. Our culture loves and values self-worth. And we disdain this idea of someone looking over our shoulder telling us what we should and shouldn't do. And I, I get that. I get that. That feels uh, oppressive and suppressive. But, but all of the stuff as we talk about Jesus ruling and reigning over creation and over our lives uh, makes us pause and go, how does someone have the right to this type of authority in my life? That how can someone reign supreme above all things? What gives Jesus the right to barge into my life and claim authority over me when I'm not a willing participant in it? And Paul tackles that. Jump back with me to verse 15. Jesus is the son of the, in, he is the image of the invisible God. So he's the image of the invisible God. Paul's saying here, this is why Jesus has a right to be supreme in your life. This is why he has the supremacy. This is why he rules. This is why he reigns. He's the image of the invisible God. So God, whom no person has ever seen, exists, created all things, sustains all things, uh, still exists today. And Jesus is the image of that, meaning the exact mark or, or replication. So no, we might not have been able to see God, but we see, uh, we see God through seeing Jesus. We see God through seeing Jesus, God incarnate represented to the world around us. So do we want to know God? Do we want to know his heart? All we have to do is look at Jesus. So why does he have the ability to, to rule and reign in my life? He's the image of the invisible God. He's firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn might not do much for us. In fact, most of the time, when I reference to one of my kids uh, being firstborn, that usually means uh, obstinate and uh, all of the like, oh, he's a firstborn, uh, you know what goes with that. Uh, but what, Jesus, or what, what Paul's saying here is that Jesus, by being firstborn, has all of the rights and privileges and authority and responsibility that came with being a firstborn in ancient culture. He's the one with, uh, with which, or through which the bloodline passes. He's the one that is, uh, has first grasp at all the inheritance. Um, he's the one that uh, people look to as the namesake for the family. So he's not only the image of God here on the earth, he's the firstborn and he gets all the rights and privileges that come with being firstborn. Jesus is, by definition, as Paul's saying, he's special, he's different. But if you leave it there, if you just leave it as he's the image of the invisible God and he's the firstborn over all creation, it could make us pause and go, well, it kind of sounds like God just picked a really special person. That God was just like, well, this Jesus guy seems kind of nice. And so why don't you be kind of my representative and that sort of thing. And Paul says, but it's so much more than that. 
He goes on to say, all things were created through him, meaning Jesus was an active agent in the process of creation. Jesus, God incarnate here on the, here on the earth, was an active agent in creation. Meaning, there was nothing in Jesus as a member of the Godhead, as a member of the Trinity, spoke and all things were created. Paul's getting on here. This is why Jesus has authority. This is why Jesus rules and has supremacy in our lives because he made all things. But not only this, hear this, he didn't just make all things. It's not that it stops that all things were made by him, but he goes on to say that all things were made for him. So he was an active agent in creation, meaning he took part in the creation. So it's his world. And then on top of that, he's the recipient of creation. All things were made by him and all things were made for him. Creation was made for him to delight in. When the world was created and God pronounced it good, it's so that the Godhead could could look at everything that was created and go, this is wonderful. Out of the overflow of who I am, I get to experience and enjoy all of this. So all things, he's the image of God. He's the firstborn. He gets all the rights and privileges. All things were made by him. All things were made for him. And then in verse 17, he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Meaning, he didn't just create the world. This is what a lot of the uh, deists, a lot of the founding fathers were deists, um, that the, the God spun the world into motion, flung it out into the cosmos, and just kind of washed his hands of it and stepped away. And Paul's confronting that right here, that, the idea that God's not uh, present in our world. He said, all things were made by him and for him, and in him, uh, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, meaning God is actively sustaining his creation to this day. I think of the psalm that says, uh, praise be to God who didn't go off and leave us. He's still with us through the mess of sin, through the brokenness of humanity. He didn't fling us out into the cosmos and wash his hands of us and say, it's kind of a mess, I'm gonna go start over somewhere else. He stayed with us in the muck and the mire. He stayed with us in the sin. Uh, I had a college professor that always described it to me as this. He said, Jordan, have you ever wondered why your ears don't just like spontaneously turn into pumpkins? why there's like an order and a framework to our world that is because God, through Jesus, is sustaining the world today. He's holding in his hands and saying, there's life, and yes, there's brokenness that Jesus is actively redeeming, but there's life and there's goodness and there's beauty, and we get to experience it all in our world. All things were made by him, all things were made for him, and he actively holds and rules and sustains in our world. And this is why he has supremacy. This is why Jesus rules. Which then begs the question of us. 
if Jesus rules, if Jesus is supreme above all things, he's more than just an addition to our lives, what is the proper response for us as humanity? And the only proper response to someone that made the world and sustains the world and then in the middle of the making and the sustaining redeem the world is full and total and complete 100% surrender of our lives. And not necessarily a surrender as like, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to submit and I have no active part, but a surrender in the sense that we are now participating in how God is working and moving in our lives. And there's no in-between. There's no like partial surrender. If I, if I pulled out my phone and I said, Jim, where do you want to fly right now? If you could fly anywhere right now, where would you fly? My, my treat. It's not, to be clear, but my treat. <laughs> where would you go? Is there some great fishing lake you want to go to? Florida. Florida? You want to go to Florida? Okay. If I said, Jim Marcy, you guys, man, you work so hard. You love so well. I just want to, to be clear, I'm not. I just want to treat you guys. <clears throat> I just want to treat you guys to a trip to Florida. I buy you tickets. I go print them out. I hand them to you. I say, plane leaves at 4 p.m. I need you to get over to Indy, pack your stuff, get over there, get on the plane. At 4 o'clock, you're either on the plane or you're not on the plane. You cannot partway go to Florida on an airplane. And the same is true of a life with Jesus. You're either surrendered and living your life for him or you're not. There's there's no such thing as an appropriate response of partial surrender. If Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, If Jesus is all of these things, if he's rescued us, if he's ruling, if he's redeeming, he's doing all of these things, the only appropriate response is total and complete surrender. One of the commentaries I was reading this week said, do you just have, I think it was N.T. Wright, he said, do you just have a mild approval of Jesus or have you surrendered your life to him and his kingship and the totality of it? Keep in mind, this isn't just a surrender to uh, just anybody. This isn't a surrender to like a, a mean dictator. This isn't a surrender to, to, to some God that is vengeful and out to get you. This is a surrender to a good and kind and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God. That's wanting to be in relationship with you. His his intentions for you are not to hurt you. His intentions for you are not to make your life hard. Will your life be hard in total surrender? Probably. But his intention is for you to experience his love and his presence, which are far better than any hardship that you could ever endure. The only appropriate response to the work and person of Jesus is total and full surrender. I was thinking about how to explain to us what is like, how do we, okay, sign me up, Jordan, what do I do? How do I, do I like sign a contract? What, what does total surrender look like? And, and here's what I thought of when I thought of what does total surrender look like? It starts with starting today, going, Jesus, today I surrender my life to you. 
I want to do things your way, how you say to live, uh, lives of love and of goodness and of grace, uh, lives of light in a dark world. However you say to live, I want to do those things. So every facet of my life, the way I respond to others, the way I treat others, the way I think, the way I feel, I want it to be shaped by who you are. So you start today. And then you wake up tomorrow and you do it again. You say, Jesus, today I'm choosing to surrender my will and my intention to one that is far better in yours. I want to do things your way. I want to live life your way. I want to do the things that you want me to do. You start today. You do it again tomorrow. And then when inevitably today and tomorrow, you, you drop the ball and you try and take back control and you say, oh, Jesus, I kind of want to reign supreme even though you made the world and you created it and you sustained it. Uh, and you try and take a little bit of that back. Uh, you just go, well, Jesus, I'm really sorry. Let's, let's, let's start this over again. And, and so you start today and you do it again tomorrow and then you, you repent often. But like I said, there is no such thing as partial surrender. You're either on the plane or you're not. And so for every person in this room that demands a a reflection and it demands a response, is Jesus who he says he is and have I surrendered the totality of my life to who he says he is and, and framing my life doing things God's way? I want to give us some time to reflect on this. I'm going to ask Jeff to come and and close us out. And uh, I just want you to ask God to speak to you in this moment. Maybe it's an area of your life, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your your vocation. There's so many facets of our lives. Um, But maybe it's an area of your life that you're like, I've been kind of trying to to steer and direct and do things my own way. And I'm sitting at the gate. I haven't hopped on the plane yet. So as we sing this and we think about who Jesus is and the fact that he rules and he reigns, he's supreme, he's better than everything, every single thing you can imagine. Ask him to speak to you about those areas of your life that, that you haven't laid over or, or released control of. And maybe now is an opportunity for you to begin that process. Let me pray for you. Jesus, you are better than everything we could imagine. You're ruling and you're reigning. And so we, in this moment, surrender ourselves to you, asking that you'll, uh, in your kindness and in your grace, that you'll draw up these things in our lives. Lord, we confess and believe that everything was made by you and for you, including our lives. And so we just ask that you meet us in this moment and that we'll be transformed because of it. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.